Am I on the air? Are we receiving calls? We are receiving calls only from my uh, toddler. Well, um, that's... Yeah. I can't wait until my kids marry your kids, assuming they're all straight. <laughs> yeah. it'll, say, it'll be convenient. Yeah, it'll have yeah. a charm. It'll yeah. make it'll make uh, podcasting just so much easier. <laughs> yeah, no question. Assuming they all live in a, a farm commune uh, yeah. in rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking more of a kibbutz in, uh, in rural, <laughs> rural Israel, but we can work out the details. Hey, everybody, this is Matthew. My conversation with Brian the other day went extra long, and we ended up getting into a, a number of other topics, including some some sort of specific ethical dilemmas relating to the to nonfiction, as well as the the brilliant and delightful sexual frustrations of W. Somerset Mom, and of course, the inevitable sublime. It was a pretty fun conversation, so I figured I would just put it out as a little bonus. Please enjoy. Let's get to that right now. So I, I want to ask you about a book I have super complicated feelings about, just because it seems like it might be the uh, up your alley either is something you would you would be furious about and, and hate or be interested in. Do you know the book Inside the Third Reich? No, I don't. Sorry. So it, it's... It's a million pages long. It's one of many books that I read all of at some point because my dad had talked about it so much that I assumed he had read it and then later <laughs> learned that he had not read a page of it. So it, it, this is Albert Speer, who was the, basically he's known as like Hitler's architect. He was not intimately involved in like the the most explicitly horrifying aspects of the, the, the Nazi regime, but was for a while was like the top logistics man and the Third Reich. He was like the he was like the COO under Hitler's CEO for a lot of the the third. Yes, one. exactly. Yeah, like he he has a he he talks he has a you know who knows how accurate, but like he has an interesting pitch in the book about how the reason it reminds me very much of the rivets rant in Heart of Darkness. What I really wanted was rivets. Great rant. Um, yes. but it, he has a passage in the, in the, this book about how basically the reason. Germany lost the war was ball bearings. Um, like he was like trying to produce ball bearings and he couldn't produce enough of them or he wasn't allowed to produce enough. of them. So the, the thing is like, he is, I think an important difference between him and a lot of the other people who were tried at Nuremberg is that he was both educated and smart. Like a lot of the, a lot of the, the top Nazis were, were like Trump appointees. Like they were, they were sort of like dumb thugs and uh, Speer was extremely sophisticated. Uh, and and his plea at Nuremberg is extremely sophisticated, which was like I, I unconditional apology and surrender, and you were completely right. And uh, I, I I ask don't I don't even ask for your mercy and blah 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 blah. And he of course received mercy, and he he was sentenced to twenty years in prison, and then got out and wrote this best selling book. And it is a it is a book taking responsibility for for like a half witting ignorance. He has this even like beautifully rendered scene where he's like, Hitler is, is like, or he's like showing him this, this, this like big apartment building that he wants to have like torn down and re redone. 
It's like you, I want you to you this, you're the architect. I want you to, to, to redo this whole place. And they're sort of walking through this place, looking at all the rooms and figuring out how what they're going to tear down, what they're going to do. And he's like thinking like a designer and he's kind of getting inspired. And they like pass this, there's this little plate, there's like look through the doorway, and there's a, a patch of floor with with what looks like blood on it. And they kind of like shut the door and go look in another room. And it so of course stands in as this like perfect metaphor for his like sort of awareness of what was happening. Cause of course, obviously this building had just been like taken from a bunch of Jewish families that had been deported and sent to the ghetto or wherever at that point. So it is, it's written as a, an elaborate mea culpa and then later research, like there was a later biography of him that came out that like, it seems to be the case that much of this was not at all true. Like much of this book, like he way undersold his own awareness of what was happening. And he like misrepresented a lot of his culpability. And like, he was a much more calculating and like cold figure who sort of knew how to play PR under Hitler. And then also knew how to do that after the war. But what's also true is that like, if this book were a novel and maybe it is a novel, it would be a great novel. Like it's really insightful and really gripping, and it like really it like it's a weirdly penetrating like portrait of Hitler. It's also I don't know if you've seen the movie Downfall with the, like the Bruno Gantz performance in the bunker. It yes. is that book basically is a dramatization of certain chapters from this book or that movie. Like this book is the source for that movie, and it is a very like weirdly human portrait. And reading it like it's. Again, like it, it, I wish it were just a novel, and then it could just be a novel. It is a. It seems to be like a sort of nonfiction book full of lies that are so cleverly self-serving as not to seem self-serving. And I don't even know if I have a question for you. It just like it seemed like something that yeah you would have a thought about. Yeah. So my my thought about that is I am so I've been thinking about something similar because I have been reading a bunch of um, accounts by uh, North Korean prisoners who managed to escape into China. I've read probably four book length like accounts of this was what my life was. This is why I got sent to the work prison internment camp. This is how I escaped. This is what's actually going on in North Korea. And it turns out that of the four or so three to five I've read, including stories and other, two at least were filled with uh, lies. And after the fact, people did logistical research and, and just discovered that like what these victims say happened can't have happened or what they say happened contradicts something else they said happened, which means maybe the reason they got sent to the camp wasn't the real reason or the way they escaped wasn't the real way. And then defenders of these writers say, well, that makes sense because they wouldn't want to say the real way they escaped in case that would stop other people escaping or they didn't want to present themselves as, you know, the, the family member murderers that they are because that would make other aspects of their account less trustworthy, etc. And I felt sort of ashamed as I was reading them. And as I listened to your description of a Nazi telling a slightly or very afactual account of what 
these people experience because my, my tendency is to be a, uh, a relativist when it comes to the truth, to, to believe that there is no real truth and memory isn't trustworthy, but even in an event, you know, what one decides is true is, tends to correspond more to what is a better story to tell. I know that when I tell stories, they're almost never true. You know, like I, even when I'm just telling my wife something that happened at the grocery store that day, like if I, if I, if like the line was kind of long and I felt like I was frustrated and needing to wait on the line, you know, I would like double the size of the line when I'm telling the story just to try to, to try to get across, I guess, the emotional reality instead of the factual reality. And that just makes me a liar. I'm not claiming that this is a better way to live, but it, I, I, don't, I don't tend to believe that there is a, a findable truth when it comes to lived human experience. That said, it makes me very uncomfortable to map that vision of the world on to the Third Reich or what's happening in um, North Korea right now, because there are uh, real world consequences of imprecision in, in, in these in these ways, and maybe the real-world, you know, consequences of, of all imprecisions, and and that's why a search for the truth is really more valuable than novels. And novelists should be dismissed as mere entertainers, whereas nonfiction writers have, you know, a, a greater calling. Because there is something very um, off-putting about my inclination towards relativism when mapped onto these larger aspects of, of human mass suffering. And I, I don't quite know what to do with it. I, I think it's possible to say, I wish the Nazi had written a novel instead of calling it nonfiction. I think it's also possible to say, anything from this Nazi is incredibly valuable on a psychological and possibly factual level. I think it's also possible to say, I don't think mass murderers should be allowed to publish books. I, I like I don't I don't know how I feel about any of this because my gut instinct, which is that there's no such thing as the truth, so we should all tell our versions and try to entertain one another, doesn't apply to, to these situations. And I don't know if there is a, a firm line I could draw between when it does and when it doesn't apply. And I think that that probably just makes me a hypocrite. Another one of my my dad's like weird refrains growing up was you'd always say art is art is amoral, which I, I tend to sort of agree with. But but it, like increasingly, I feel like making art is amoral. Like the the you know in a way like Bobby McIlvaney, maybe he would have been a better novelist if he'd been a worse person. <laughs> like the like the the my like my guess is like the the. Uh, on balance, I don't know with these particular accounts you're talking about, but like my guess is the uh, the the more of the people who escaped North Korea and wrote stories that were wrote accounts of what happened, like my guess is the the better writers among them were probably writing less accurate stories. Like they were better. I mean, like they were better able to shape it. They were better able to like whatever you're doing, you're, you're aiming to write something readable that rings true that gets at something that feels true uh, and you have more control over it whereas if you're if you're just sort of boringly reporting it's like I mean, like what's one of my problems with, with like doing research is that often the 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 juiciest read is not necessarily the most informative and the most informative is like it's just like brutally boring to get through it's brutally boring to get through and then when regurgitated into narrative by us it's not necessarily 
the most accurate because like when, when I write these pieces about um, neurology for the times, really what my answer is, is I don't know. Like yeah. I don't, I've spoken to all these experts and I have no idea what's going on, um, but you can't write that. So what I write is my best guess about what's going on is a combination of siloed medical practitioners and financial incentives and medical uncertainty leads us to a path that tends to look like this. Is that more or less valuable than me saying, I've spoken to all these experts, they all disagree with one another, I don't know. My answer is it's more valuable, I think, because the readers of the New York Times who have experienced something comparable or have loved ones who are experiencing somewhat comparable have a way to look at their suffering um, categorize it and move forward based on this path that I've proposed. And that, in that way, uh, I, I think I'm writing something along the lines of service journalism. That's what you are saying um, or implying that what the North Korean defectors are doing. They're writing something along the lines of service journalism, even if not purely factually accurate. Um, I don't know though where morality, especially amorality comes into it because it seems like all your examples were moral after you said that writing the act of producing art is amoral. It, it seems like people no. are, are consciously trying to be moral or immoral. And no, 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 no. I, no, I think the, 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 the will to make something good and the, the wherewithal to make something good is independent of accuracy or even the, like the morality of the person making it or... Sorry, which definition of good? Something good in terms of morally good or something good in terms of narratively... Oh, healthy? narratively good. Like like writing good. Like okay. uh, like like the weird experience I had, like uh, meeting the, the two surgeons who did my, my big surgery a few years ago. The, the brain surgeon was like, was like central casting brain surgeon. He was like, like gray hair, very like carefully parted. And he had you know, uh, frameless glasses. And he was sort of, you know, 55 and like sturdy, but not really overweight and like very thoughtful and quiet and extremely authoritative. And then the ENT surgeon who like, I learned separate from this is like, happens to be like the number three or four ENT surgeon in the world. Be like, like the, weirdly that happens to be this program here was just like a goofy puppy dog athlete guy who like said a bunch of things that were like wrong in conversation and just sort of like had a kind of like a jumpy jokey energy and like had like funny facial hair, but was just like, he was, he, I mean, truly he was like one of those guys who's like, oops, he's just like, he's like a big puppy dog, but then you see him on the basketball court and he's a genius. And like, apparently with surgery, like it, he's a physical genius. Like he just can get inside your nose and throat and do amazing things, but he's like, not, he's like smart enough, but right. it's like, it doesn't really matter. And and it feels like with writing, it it feels a little bit like that, that you're uh, the, 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 to make a really good writing almost like is it helps not to be too committed to anything else, including doing the right thing. Including I, doing the, the moral thing, including doing the accurate thing, including doing anything <laughs> right. other than other yeah. than focusing on a good story. And and part and like as you pointed out, like part of the problem is is that publications want a slanty take. And and that's not just because they are evil, it's because that's what people want to read, which like it's now making me think like there's a 
it's, it's like, it feels like an apology for salacious headlines. Like I, I think like a lot of the, I don't know if you've had this experience with like reading, reading the work of people, you know, or, or like you sort of know, or even like writing reviews where I don't like very often in print, at least on the podcast, I can just be a, an idiot, but in print, like, I don't, I don't often like to just like slam people partly because it feels like not very productive, but like a, a, a tactic I came up with a while ago was to basically write a, like announce the moral of what I was writing. Like I say, like, this is a good review and then write a very neutral description. But like having been introduced as a good review, people would inevitably read it as a positive review. And it feels like in a way that the, maybe the better version of the, the nonfiction piece would be like a really slanted, uh, overt, uh, explicit headline followed by uh, a, a shades of gray nuance with no conclusions. And often that's, that's what happens. I mean, that th th where uh, the reason why they A-B test these headlines is they almost let that, that the headline choose itself where yeah. they give a a relatively nuanced headline, they give a super dramatic headline, they give something in between and they see what gets clicks. And then the faster one of those emerges victorious, the faster the other two go away. Yeah. I, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you at some point, but there was a, a an interview I can, I have not been able to find that Jonathan Franzen did with somebody uh, where he talked about doing research and how like he, he does, he never wants to like do too much research. He wants, he like, he's, he basically, he said, he said that the, the best possible outcome that research can yield is permission to make things up, which, which does feel, feel very true. And it, I thought like, a, like a decent place to, to end would be this wonderful um, quotation that you sent me the other day. So we're, we're both casual or maybe like not casual, but non-scholarly fans of uh, W. Somerset Mom. And I, I recently read the Moon and Sixpence for the first time, which is a weird semi, it's, it's sort of based on the life of Paul Gauguin, but but not really. And I'm, I'm unfairly bringing it up because I told you, oh, we would definitely won't bring that up. And you don't <laughs> need to read it. And please don't prepare to speak about the Moon and Sixpence. But you uh, he you sent a line that he wrote from, uh, that, that is included in The Razor's Edge, which is another wonderful uh, uh, novel of, of Mom's. He says, many years ago, I wrote a novel called The Moon and Sixpence. In, in that, I took a famous painter, Paul Gauguin, and using the novelist's privilege, devised a number of incidents to illustrate the character I had created on the suggestions afforded me by the scanty facts I knew about the French artist. In the present book, I have attempted to do nothing of the kind. I have invented nothing. Which is, of course, also a great lie, presumably. Oh, it's like, so spectacular. It's so wonderful. I mean, to be a best-selling novelist saying to your reader, look, in this other best-selling novel that I wrote, I used this trick and I made it all up. But in this best-selling novel, I'm not gonna do that. You can trust me. Everything I'm writing here is true. And then to just make it all up again, what a move, what a move. I mean, I, I, I shudder at just like the, the, the top doggedness of that, just like the, it, like the, the absolute, to be in the position to say that 
and then to say that and then just to like it's not even a wink it's like a big fuck you from w somerset mom i it it is such a thrilling line and it is as as like rapturously victorious a line uh, in in any novel as i've ever read Oh yeah, no, it's it's one, it's 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 a uh, the but one of my favorite uh, opening lines from that novel. Also, clearly an, an outright lie is I have never begun a novel with more misgiving. More misgiving. It's just it's, it's yeah. I want to do a, a proper conversation with you about mom, mom at some point as well. I also realize I I want you to write a a novel purporting to be an historical account of of some unfact checkable but important series of events oh that's like, what i'm doing now so oh, is i'm it? stealing so i i um i don't know whether it's going to take six months or six years but i'm stealing the um setup from the razor's edge with which i've never seen anybody else use the, the, the essential construct the architecture of the razor's edge is this old guy who says like listen a whole bunch of things have happened in my life but I'm not going to tell you about any of that. What I'm going to tell you about is just this one extraordinary guy whom I interacted with over the course of decades um, in intense periods of time and then didn't interact with that guy for another five to 20 years and then saw him again and then didn't. And like, this guy is really extraordinary. He's a hundred percent real. He might even be so famous eventually that this account of his life could be used for scholarly or perhaps historical value. But if not, I hope it might be a little entertaining too. So I, I've never read anything like that other than The Razor's Edge. And I am um, going to, I think what I'm gonna do is use my beloved recently deceased friend who was a mentor of mine and a teacher of mine and a friend of mine. He became a, um, a minister to marry me to my wife. He uh, died a year or so ago, but before that he had a stroke and wasn't able to speak for 10 years. Um, and I, the, the book is going to be a found manuscript that he wrote that I then edited and was asked to publish under my name about his famous favorite student over the 40 year course of her life. So that's what I'm at least trying to figure out my way into at the moment. That sounds terrific. And also like the, there's some crooked parallel there to this Jennifer senior piece. Like I, like I almost want like in so far as it's like, it's, it's the, I mean, hers is like not really the story of the one magical kid, but it's, but he's the he sort of is the is this figure who stands out over it and and he like that is I mean the razor's edge is like Larry is this this shining magical strange wonder that he talks about yeah I, like I want you now for your publication promoting lit hub piece I want it to be <laughs> I want I want you to write a piece of which Jennifer Senior is the Helen McIlvaney of your piece like I, I want you to write like the piece right I mean what's what's it's funny. I had never thought of that, but maybe that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk so much about this piece. The, the novel that, again, I'm, I'm inching my way into, I'm at the very, very, very beginning of the very, very, very first draft, but it's from the perspective of someone who is trying to tell someone else's story, but who can't stop himself from telling his own story too. And it's like a battle inside the, narr the narrator where we see as the reader him 
pretending that this is just a story about this ex-student of his, when in fact, it's a story about himself as well, because he's in his own way, a sort of an egomaniac in the way that all narrators must be. And, um, and it, he can't keep that aspect of, of himself from coming through. And I think perhaps the same way Jennifer Senior can't hear. Um, so that is a fascinating analysis and something that I'm gonna to have to think more about as I write. The main character who is this magical genius guy in A Razor's Edge, I wonder if he's just gay. Have you read it recently? So mm -hmm. much of what is about described about him as like otherworldly is like, although this wonderful woman wants to dedicate her life to him and to have a normal marriage, he wants to go and live and find answers elsewhere. You know, and Somerset Maugham famously had a, a male companion over the, right. the last 30 years of his life who, mad, who meant the world to him. And even the descriptions of um, this main magical character having sex with the French model of all these other um, artists who she sort of lives by being the in-house lover and model and housekeeper, she um, falls for this magical character and describes having sex with him in this very like, like he was a, a, a tender lover, if somehow distracted and not as into the, the, the feminine form as people, you know, I've previously had sex with. It just in reading the book again, in order to, to find my way into my novel, it, it struck me that almost every thing that seems magical about this guy could just be somebody trying to deal with being gay in a world that doesn't allow gayness as a, an acceptable course of life where everybody else is forced into heterosexual marriages according to their station in life. It ta ta talks so much about what a man's duty is, especially in the growing America, the virility of America. You get married and you work for your country and America is becoming a powerhouse in the world. And what does he do? He can't handle any of that. He escapes all of it. And he tries to find real meaning in places that are more accepting of him. And obviously I wouldn't want the entire thing to be an allegory about sexuality because that that I think takes a lot of the energy away from it. But as a catalyst, it does a whole lot of work. Um, maybe that's accepted, as you say, we are not academics of, of this work and maybe everyone just knows that, you know, th th that's the, the, the engine behind a lot of his uh, character. But in my latest reading, that, that made a lot yeah. of sense to me. Yeah, no, I, so I've, 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 I've read three of his novels and then one of his plays and, and they all weirdly have a similar in some ways they have, a, they have a similar shape in that. So the moon and sixpence is about a guy who's a, who's a, a four square stockbroker in London with a wife and kids. And he's like a very boring middle-aged guy. And then he up and leaves and moves to Paris. And is like, his wife is so horrified by his, he, he leaves to go to Paris, not to have an affair with some young thing, which is what everyone assumes but just to paint. And his wife is so mortified by that, that she, she invents a rumor about a ballet dancer that he runs away with, because that's better than if he just left her to paint. Yep. And then uh, the razor's edge, as you said, is about this guy who sort of, he, he like, he's a, a, a war hero and he's, he's like, he's got the right uh, family, the right pedigree, the right everything to kind of have this very successful uh, ma mainstream, you know, upper crusty life. And he, leaves to go pursue the truth in all these different strange ways. 
and then the 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 constant wife i think is the name of the but it's a a, a woman who like she's she like lies to protect her husband from the truth about his affairs and with all these other people but she's she kind of is she's very self-possessed in this way and she ends the 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 play ends with her going off to like go like sleep with some guy in the French Riviera, but not leave her husband. And he, she just like explains it to her husband and he like calmly agrees to it. And then, and then Ashenden, which is the, like a really weird book is, yep. is like mom being a spy in Switzerland. And it, in all of them, it does feel like there is a, there's a little bit of a, an allegory for being gay, even like in, in the moon and sickness, he talks about like the, the guy would like brutally indulge his sexual desires from time to time, but then he would kind of spend them and then he'd be disgusted by what he wanted. And then he would turn away from that and, and ignore it again for a while. So it does seem like there is a being okay, gay and like in the magician, I think is which is another crazy novel it. of his where there's just a magician who's like able to perform magic um, in, in the book in England, you know, in 1908 or whatever it was. Um, and one of the main plot points is that, uh, I think that the, the, the narrator's name is Arthur. I, I, he realizes that, um, that the, the magician and his wife uh, never consummated their marriage. That, that's like a, a, huh. a lot turns on that. So there, there is this element of, of like escape from reality through unusual lack of sexual predilection in so, his novels. So, so the, so I'll, I just for the hell of it, the, 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 the reading that occurs to me, and this is maybe inching into the dangerous territory of like a Ross Dow that he had, a, was, Ross Dow that had an amazing, hilarious piece, like when all those videos were coming out about the, the UFOs, yep. um, his, his just kind of weirdly breathtaking response was, well, everybody is saying, you know, maybe all of these weird, weird phenomena were actually aliens, but I have a new one for you. What if instead of all of those strange things that people notice throughout history being aliens, what if really these aliens that we're seeing are actually fairies and elves? You think like, whoa, whoa. It's like a, like a mind-blowing trick. But part of me wonders like if clearly it is better for people to be able to openly marry whoever they want to marry and clearly like tolerance and also that's clearly that's better however i wonder if <laughs> i wonder if back when being gay was something you had to keep deeply deeply hidden it's not just that like all of this weird luminous magical art was just about having gay sex i wonder if the if if like being gay was able to be a more charged and powerful metaphor when it was a see like like it not I, I wonder I wonder yeah. the same thing about um people who want to have sex with children now right I mean, a, a large number of brilliant filmmakers and, and perhaps other artists seem to have strains of pedophilia in them yeah. and, and I and I of course do not think that there is any moral or legal or any possible comparison between homosexuality where there are two consenting people doing what they want right. and an adult trying to fuck a kid. Like there, yeah. there's just no, but, but in terms of having instincts that you know are unacceptable and needing to live within those societies that find your instincts unacceptable. I mean, people argue 
so much about whether Woody Allen was or was not a monster, you know, and yeah. are we just taking Mia Farrow's perspective and whom can we trust? And it's all, but to me, it's, it's far more interesting to, because to, we have no idea, right? right? But what we do know is that this was one of the greatest filmmakers of his generation. And we do know that he had a thing with, like young girls, like young, people yeah, like, under his influence who yeah. were younger than he was, whom he yeah. had sexual attraction towards. And, and again, what happened with Roman Polanski? I again, I, I'm not I, I have no idea what happened with those details. But to, to live in a world where you have a deep hunger that the world does not allow you to um, act on, I, I, I think that of course that's going to influence art. And, and I think that that's going to create some, some pretty spectacular art in, in some cases. And the idea of like, should we separate the art from the artist to me is so much less interesting than yeah. saying like, shit, like artists who are burdened by these yearnings that society correctly in some cases and incorrectly in others in my mind um, view as unacceptable, they create some really fascinating art and we should discuss it within the context of people unable to achieve orgasm in, in the ways that they want to. If you're, if the burden you carry or if you're suffering or if your difficulty is one if you are told that you are, that you're at least in the right, that like you're, that there may be something like whether or not the, the expectations of society are correct, there may be something to being disapproved of and being told you have to keep something secret or, or, or be ashamed of it that, that makes you look to articulate it in some other way. Totally. And I, I'm sorry, his, his most read book, if we're still on mom, of human bondage, isn't the kid's born with a club foot like he 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 has a a, something wrong with him that he can't change that then in search for wisdom and love is an impediment to all of that so like again it fits too neatly into this thesis and i i don't think at all what we're looking at is um is is a a therefore b you know and and to, to say that uh, giovanni's room is only a work of genius because james baldwin was a gay black man in a society that didn't allow freedom to gay people or black people is oversimplified but but i do think that looking for contemporary corollaries for people who are not able to express themselves honestly and the art that those people are producing is a fruitful exercise as opposed to one that we should be um, dismissing. Yeah, no, that's, that seems, that seems true. I wonder, yeah, I wonder what the, um, who was the French playwright who wrote the, the version of Antigone that was produced in occupied Paris. That's like, clearly it's like, it's like an allegory about the Nazis being terrible, but then like also weirdly part of what's really good about that translation is that Creon is really sympathetic. Yep. Like the, like the Nazi guy himself is you're like, Oh, he's the most human character in the play. Uh, yeah. What, what is the version of that today? And maybe we, I don't know, maybe we, maybe we're too anal expulsive. Maybe we don't have enough. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the, the person of, uh, of that time is just doing a, um, a, an intellectual dark web podcast. And so it's, it's not getting, it's not getting channeled into art. 
Right. It's it's uh, who's the guy with the squeaky voice who's alt right and and Ben something who says everybody is terrible. Um, uh, Ben Shapiro. Yeah, Ben Shapiro. He is. What does the, he What does he say? I know he like I know he's like a right right wing guy. And yeah, oh, he just says that that Trump is is the answer, and that those of us who don't realize it um, aren't <laughs> letting people live out their their freedoms. I, I believe the the Antigone is is Jean Ennui, but but I, I Ennui is how I would pronounce the French yeah, word from boredom. Right. So I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But it says no, I, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, it, it because it. I always got his pronunciation, the the pronunciation of his name mixed up with the pronunciation of the word for like um, boredom or- Yeah, E-N-N-U-I. There, yeah. There's, another, there's another Jean something who has a, the most memorable int- entry in Simon Wiesenthal's The Sunflower, where he, he talks about being tortured. And he says, once you like, if you've been, if you've ever been tortured, then you are tortured, then like you're tortured forever. The torture never stops, but he, but his name is, I always confuse it with Sean Ennui. And so I can never remember, I then can never remember either name. Just on torture. And then I'll, I'll let you go. Please. Um, the, I, I've been reading um, because of, of you, I, I, I've been reading instruction manuals by the ancients. So uh, I wanted to, on the sublime, my, my favorite book on the sublime is Longinus or Longinus on the sublime, which is basically just like this ancient instruction manual. So as opposed to Kant and Burke, who try to explain the sublime in these, these very grandiose terms about, you know, suffering in the face of potential or grandiosity in, in the face of uh, danger or horror, um, Longinus just like tells you how to do it. So he's like, <laughs> he, he, he's like, he's like, if you write an entire story in the third person and then switch to the second person, the sublime. Or if he's like, he's like, if if like like Homer does it, like you just focus on one character and then you focus on tons of characters at the same time, the sublime. And it's just so like, there's the beginning and the end when he tries to like explain what the sublime is in general, but just being told by like these like thousands of year old guy like how to do it. I I love it. So I went in looking for other instruction manuals from like super old people. And I forget which saint it is, but it's just like a blow by blow on how to survive being tortured. And he's like, some people do this and some people do that, but they're wrong. He goes, the only way to get through being tortured is you find something in the torturer that you relate to and you deeply empathize with the torturer and you Think about what created this torturer and the fact that the torturer has a kid and has a spouse and what makes him want to be a torturer. And that becoming part of the act of being tortured by this other human being, that is how you survive being tortured. And just like, I have no idea, like that sounds sensible and funny. And, but just the idea that like thousands of years ago, these guys are like, this is how you spackle a house. This is how you achieve the sublime. This is how you survive being tortured. It's a new genre that I've discovered that has made my uh, pandemic life far richer and more fascinating. And I, I and I, in addition to your your historical uh, or pseudo historical, I want you to um, I want you to write a short story that is that is just written in the form of, a, of an instruction manual for how to do something pre- preposterous. I just got a note from uh, Joanna who's telling me to, to uh, shut the fuck up and go watch my daughters. This is well, wonderful. It's, it's just ter- terrific. It's always to talk to you, especially when I have an excuse to do it for, for some semi silly official reason. 
The pleasure, believe me, is all mine. As a Slee Ricketts super fan and completist, this uh, finally can check this off my bucket list. So hopefully the first of many, but thank you for yeah, the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, I will I will soon be uh, uh, blackmailing you into co-hosting this thing with me. All right, it good night. So give, a, uh, give, honor, or good morning. Give my best to, uh, to your wife and kids. And to my son's future wives.